And in matters of the heart, when things hurt, we tend to shut down and we shut out. We tend to stop listening or we listen to respond versus listen to understand. You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. This is a show about curiosity. We feature research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. Today's show is the second of a two-part series on curiosity and racism, or more precisely, curiosity and challenging racism. Monique Brown, who helps facilitate a course by that name here in Arlington, is back for more, including an exploration of my own journey with the class and choosing to be curious about race and racism. So one of the things that we learned in the Challenging Racism class was a little bit more about Arlington's history, its racial history, and I found a lot of it actually pretty surprising. One thing that I had known about was this wall that enclosed a part of a black community in Arlington. And um, I'd known it was there, I'd never actually seen it, but in February of this year, they actually put up an historic marker about it. And I, I'd never been there, so I thought, well, I'm, I'm gonna go walk over and see this marker. And so it's here in the middle of a residential neighborhood and there's a chunk of what was once this wall um, that's still intact here. And here's, here's what the marker says. It says, Halls Hill Wall. This wall is a reminder of racial segregation in the historically African-American community of Halls Hill. During construction of the Woodlawn Village subdivision in the 1930s, a wall of various materials and heights was built here to separate blacks from the adjacent white neighborhood. The only through street in Halls Hill at that time was North Edison Street. During the late 1950s, children from Halls Hill removed a small section of the wall to create a passage to a nearby creek. In 1966, Arlington County removed a larger section of the wall, allowing full access to and from Halls Hill. Sections of the wall still stand today. And the sign says, erected in 2016 by Arlington County, Virginia, in honor of the 150th anniversary of Halls Hill. What the plaque doesn't say, but I've learned elsewhere, is that the county actually bought two houses in the white neighborhood in order to create that pass-through. And this was interesting to me because I think in Arlington we have this idea of being a really enlightened community and that we were probably always an enlightened community. You know, this was this was the part of Virginia that voted against secession in the Civil War. and And we have this idea that somehow we've stood apart from a lot of Virginia's really unfortunate um, history in racial matters. And it's just not true. And so being curious around Arlington and looking for those things was one of the things that I really came to learn and appreciate in the Challenging Racism class. Monique Brown has been one of the facilitators in my class on Challenging Racism, a course that brings people together over many weeks to have conversations and share stories in an effort to unearth and break down racial barriers. The program began about a dozen years ago as part of an effort to address an achievement gap in Arlington Public Schools. Mo's the proud mother of two, a teenager and a toddler, 
and was recently recognized by Arlington Public Schools as a model of excellence in cultural leadership and civic engagement. We were very proud in the class. So welcome back, Mo. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have you back. It's been fun to get to know you over all of these months of the class. So let's recap quickly. So what's the course in a kind of in a nutshell? In a nutshell, it's an 11-week workshop uh, spread over about six or seven months in Arlington County schools and um, other facilities that we delve into being more introspective in regards to racism, equality, microaggressions, macroaggressions, white privilege, just a number of things that we encountered in the day-to-day that sometimes we don't have the correct name for and we're not really knowledgeable about how those affect people. All right. Right. Yeah. I mean, having the name for them and also having a way to begin to get your hands around them. Because sometimes for me anyway, they were like they were these they were they were these amorphous things. And we began to kind of describe their dimensions in the course. So that's important. As an African-American, There are a number of encounters that I've personally experienced, and I'm sure quite others have experienced as well. And I wanted to make sure that I am a positive role model for my own children, as well as members of my community, but especially the children in my community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember you saying that in our first conversation, that it really mattered to you that you made a difference in your kids' lives. And and one of the things I think that really struck me in the class is watching my classmates. And, of course, there's a strict rule, let me just, for the audience, that, you know, what happens in the classroom stays in the classroom. So I'm not going to tell any tales out of school here, so to speak. But but in the gestalt of things, in the nonspecific of things, to watch us as a group begin to understand how we can make a difference for our kids, I really felt that imprint. I really did. So is that the goal of the course? What do you think? The goal of the course for my own experience is to really bring about personal understanding. Mm. There is this beautiful process of the members or the, the students having a sense of enlightenment. Yeah. About midway through the course after a couple sessions. And the enlightenment really just entails being able to open-mindedly see things from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a lot of situational exercises that we do as well as bring in guests that share their own experiences. And I think a large part of that enlightenment comes from hearing firsthand experiences. Um, I openly shared mine, um, shared things from my family's past and things that stories that I've heard over the years from grandparents and parents and aunts and uncles. And these things tend to have generational long-term effects. Yeah, I was really struck. You had some stories in that respect. I mean, lots of people had stories of the the downstream consequences, the compounding downstream consequences of things that to the unsuspecting or the uninitiated wouldn't even necessarily get labeled as racism, and yet really were. And for me, you know, as I was thinking about and preparing for this conversation, I thought, okay, so what for me were the most kind of significant 
uh, takeaways, big big bucket takeaways on this because there were so many moment to moment kind of insights like, ooh, wow. But one of them was actually at the very beginning in the definition itself of racism because I think for me it was such a different way to think about racism and I had thought about racism as a a whole system of things that disadvantaged people. But the definition of racism that's used in the class is actually a system of advantage based on race. Do you think other people also see that as a different kind of way of thinking about racism? I do. I do. I think a lot of people generally view racism as uh, as it is a derogatory action. Right. It's definitely an action. But we don't generally think of it as a system of privilege and a system of advantage. When we start looking into how to correct things, we don't realize that we have not started on equal playing field. Right. right. And that is a very big um, aspect (laughs) of racism and uh, the the vast disparity of the achievement gap that we've personally talked about in Arlington County and in the United States and Mm -hmm. abroad Mm -hmm. uh, for people of color. So yes, I definitely think that's a it's a it's a big eye opener. It is. And you know what I appreciated about it and this sort of goes back to the curiosity angle was that it provided a fresh way for me to think about how I participate in a racist system because it was easy for me to see that there were advantages, particularly when I was when I had them pointed out to me <laughs> in the course, <laughs> and and I found that it was actually very powerful in talking with people outside the class to say if you think of racism not as something that you're doing that really disadvantages somebody because nobody wants to think of themselves that way, right? But you think of racism as something that's actually just giving you all kinds of advantages. What? might that look like? What does that, what actually fits into that? I don't know what you think about that. And it actually made entering into the conversation much easier with people. I don't know if other people found that, but to me, it allowed people to bring curiosity to the conversation in a way that they hadn't before. You're smiling. Is that ringing true? <laughs> it, it definitely rings true. It's. Um, I think it allows people to be more vulnerable. Yeah. When you hear the words racism, white privilege, um, achievement gap, and so forth, there's this negative connotation associated with it. And so, if you say, "Well, you, you know, you have benefited from white privilege," it doesn't make you a racist. You've benefited from the system that's been put forth by our government for right. quite some time and from our society. And when you can look at it from that aspect and from that angle, you can say, "Okay, well, I'm not being labeled as one that's racist. I basically was playing a monopoly game, and they just handed this to me to start right. for an analogy." I, I didn't do anything. I'm not guilty of anything, but I'm able to learn. I'm able to be vulnerable to say, well, let me take a little bit more in. Let me look into this a little bit more. Right. For me, that was actually a really, that was a really big takeaway in the course. And and the second kind of relates just to what you were saying on the systemic nature of things and 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 putting that in the Arlington context. And I thought this was such a wise thing that you do in the class 
with really starting at home, it's like, and literally home, let's talk about the um, housing discrimination and the racial covenants and the real estate practices that continued in the county into my lifetime in the mid-60s um, as the Halls Hill, you know, wall um, speaks to. So can you can you speak to that at all? I mean, you know, sort of how, again, that plays out? Definitely. So I actually was having this conversation recently with someone that wasn't very aware of mm-hmm. uh, the government being behind a lot of redlining um, in, re- in regards to people that were in the military or in, right. in the service members. Service members would go overseas and they were fighting for our country, African-Americans, Caucasians together. And they would come home and they thought that they would have the GI Bill and they would be able to attain a home for their families and raise their families. And they found out that that wasn't true. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just that their neighbors were stopping them, but that their government was stopping them, the government that sent them to war. Right. And that was – those realizations were for me really pretty devastating. It's like, maybe I knew this, but I didn't own this you know, it's it's hard to own. And it's a lot of history that we're not taught. And yeah. that's really, really right. the big thing. If, you, if really you're not true. taught, you don't know. And it it goes, as we were discussing before, is it generational is that if you're not able to obtain a home, you're not able to build that equity in a home. So whereas my Caucasian counterparts, grandparents may have had a few properties and have been able to generate generational wealth and go in to their um the bank and ask for a loan on the equity in their home, African-Americans weren't able to buy into these same neighborhoods. Right. So they had a delay in generational wealth. If they were able to obtain any generational wealth, mm-hmm. anytime an African-American would move into certain communities, they would say, oh, you know, and this was written by the government that the property values dropped and they would basically buy the property for pennies and a dollar from Caucasians to get them to move. Yeah. And then they would triple the price for African-Americans to be able to buy the exact same house. And this in turn affects generation after generation after generation. Yeah, and there's really some wonderful work that's actually been done here in Arlington, kind of collecting some of those stories and, you know, kind of laying some of that history bare in a way that I think is really important to have captured um, and to be shared and, you know, sort of made it this kind of a little personal mission. That's sort of how I've gotten more curious um, to go and sort of learn those stories and see those places and understand those repercussions and understand the community in which I live in a, in a different way. Well, Arlington was so great because, you know, they did the first desegregation of schools against the state. Yes. And, you know, there's the segregated fire station number eight. And it's really an interesting and much more complicated history than, well, certainly more than I really appreciated coming into this. Definitely, definitely. So another one of the things that really jumped out to me was um, the power of staying in conversation. And you've spoken a lot about this in terms of your commitment to kind of staying in conversation with people and the class really encourages us to stay in conversation. And one of the one of the movies that we watched was The Color of Fear, which I highly recommend to people. It's not an easy movie to get your hands on, but it's possible. I'll put some links on Facebook. 
But the director and one of the participants in the movie, Les Mounois, says, you know, racism is not just what you see, do, or hear, but it's also about what you don't see, do, or hear. And in this film, which brings together, I don't know, was it eight men to kind of talk from various racial experiences and, and across some age span, to have a really pretty frank conversation. And man, that conversation gets intense, but they stay in dialogue and they're able to move past some things that I think the rest of us don't move past because we don't stay in dialogue. I I would agree. Yeah. I think oftentimes it's hard to stay in dialogue. Uh, I consider conversations on race, especially these different difficult, courageous conversations, uh, they are matter of the heart. Mm. And in matters of the heart, when things hurt, we tend to shut down yeah. and we shut out. We tend to stop listening or we listen to respond versus listen to understand. Mm -hmm. And when we get to a point where we're listening to understand that the stories that we're hearing, the experiences that have been true, that this is just somebody's way of life, we tend to be more open to discuss, well, this is my way of life. I don't agree with how you're treated, but I'm not the offender. Mm -hmm. What can I do to help? What can I do to be your ally, your friend? Yeah, yeah. Well, and one of the things, and I think Marty spoke of this in our first conversation, that so much of this is everybody's need to be heard in this and having felt heard, being then willing to hear the other and to hear things that are hard to hear, because the conversations are hard to hear. They are. They're yeah. difficult. It, uh, there are some very brave people that sign up to take these courses. That is the way I look at it. Some well, courageous people. And I love that you think of it that way, because I don't think the people in the class think of it that way. Um, I think people think of themselves as, I don't know, struggling. I mean, they just they feel like there's something wrong and they want to do something about it. And I think you're right. They are they are brave because it's scary waters. But but I have really appreciated the fact that that you and the other facilitators really telegraph this message. Of, it's okay. It's okay if it's scary. <laughs> You know, definitely. We're going to give you a net. Um, <laughs> we're going to give you a place to practice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those places to practice are are essential. We mm -hmm. we can't really move into the world confident in these conversations if we haven't had a chance to discuss them amongst other like minded people. Because everybody that you encounter um, and come across is not going to be as understanding, and they're not. They may not be willing to really listen to understand. Um, they yeah. may not be willing to listen at all. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the men in this film, The Color of Fear, at some point he sort of gets into this place where, there, where and I think it's Le Mounois, the facilitator, who kind of says, well, why, why can't you believe what this guy is saying to you? And his response is, I mean, he kind of chokes up, and his response is, because it's just too painful to think that that would be true. And to me, that was like a watershed moment in the film because I think it really, it is 
when you start to open your eyes and you start to see some of the systemic nature of racism, even for people who like to think of themselves as enlightened, it's like, wow, this is so much worse than I thought. <sighs> what do I do with that? I don't know. What do we do with that? You sign up for Challenging Racism. <laughs> <laughs> Just a quick plug. Uh, um, yeah. Well, it's 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 palatable. It is hard to see people that you have encountered and that you, you come to know, mm-hmm. uh, like our friendship, to think this is, you know, could be my day to day. This could be my children's life. The stories that we've discussed with our children. Right. And knowing that when my son leaves my door, I fear for his safety just simply because of the color of his skin. And no parent should experience that. Right. One of my worst nightmares came true for us, unfortunately, this year. Uh, my son is 13. He's a very tall 13-year-old. He's 6'2", so he looks like he, definitely a young man, if not a man. And we were... Um, Having a great evening, we had told him that he was going to get a reward uh, because he'd been doing very well in school. He has all A's and B's. And we went to a local store um, for him to look at video games to choose. Teenager, he loves video games. And unfortunately, um, I had taken his sister to the restroom. And on my way back to the restroom, I encountered a security guard walking beside me. And the head of security was on his walkie-talkie describing my son to a T. And they had profiled my son because he was in the video game section for too long. And as a mother, as an African-American mother, as somebody that facilitates these conversations, I, I listened. And I was quiet, and I went directly to my son and asked him if he was okay. Didn't raise any alarms to him. Just asked him what had happened and had anybody come up to him, and he told me yes. And so while we were walking to the front of the store, I was, you know, questioning myself. Was I being hyper aware, hypersensitive and so forth? And every scenario, every answer to the question was no, mm-hmm. that this was wrong. Right, right. And so when I um, asked to speak with a supervisor, she came out and she very, she was very forthcoming and said, yes, I did have my security follow your son because I needed to protect the store. There was no. From a customer. From a customer, somebody that was standing there to purchase an item that's 13 years old. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a catch-22 on one hand. I'm grateful that I was there so that nothing was able to transpire worse than that. Right. And I'm, I'm grateful that it um, allows me to know that these conversations are highly needed mm-hmm. and that the work we are doing is very important. And on the other hand... I grieve. Yeah. I grieve for what could be. I grieve for the possibilities. I grieve for um, the small-minded people that only see my son as a guilty person because of the color of his skin. I want to let that sink in for a moment. I grieve for the small-minded people who only see my son as, as a guilty person because of the color of his skin. So I'm here to say that's not okay. And... We need to do something about it. The final phase of Challenging Racism program is about what's next. Now, a little more enlightened, what's next for each of us in standing up in the face of racism, in the face of microaggressions, in the face of a whole system that has made many white people like me blind to what's around us? I see it 
as a call to curiosity, that we choose to be curious about the impact of racism and the experience of race, that as Lee Munois put it, we be curious about what we see and don't see, hear and don't hear, do and don't do. I forgot my big jar of wannabe analogies the day Mo and I spoke, so I'll return to one that was used in class. Think of racism as a moving sidewalk. As a white person, I don't have to do anything, and that sidewalk just propels me forward. In the meantime, others are working double time, carrying all their bags all by themselves, just to keep up, if that. Unless I'm actively walking in the other direction, unless I'm actively anti-racist, nothing changes, and I just continue to move ahead faster. Thank you for listening to WERA 96.7 FM, Radio Arlington. If you joined us late or want to catch up on this program or any of the other fabulous listening at this, your community radio station, check us out online, streaming, and on demand at WERA.FM. Find me on Facebook and Twitter, Choose to be Curious. Special thanks to my guest and mentor, Monique Brown, and to all the volunteers who make the Challenging Racism program possible here in Arlington. Be sure to check them out online at challengingracism.org. After our visit to the farmer's market, Brandon offered this analogy. Curiosity is like a farmer's market because you sample all that variety and you're hungry for more. Thanks, Brandon. I hope you'll join me next time when I celebrate a milestone one year on the air. Scott Nickham is going to join me to talk about a theme that came up over and over in the last year, the entwining of curiosity and trust. Until then, choose to be curious.